chapter 5, and we are in verse 1, and it says, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against the Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we are, sorry, we and our sons and daughters are numerous in, in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others are saying, we have had to um, borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and although our sons are as good as theirs, yet we are subject to, we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and their charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them, and I said, as far as possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers, brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what, are you do what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and gain, but let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you have charged them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and the officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way God shakes out his house and possessions and possesses every man who does not keep this promise. So many, so may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and, the, and, the, and they praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the twelfth year of King Archaxerxes, when I, had appointed, when I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judea, until the thirty-second year, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor, but the early governors who preceded me placed a heavy burden on the people and they took 40 shackles of silver from them in addition to the food and the wine. Their assistants also lorded over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like this. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on the walls. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Moreover, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table as well as those who came to me from the surrounding nations. Every day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, 
because the demands were heavy on those people. Remember me with favor, O my God, for all I have done for these people. And Father, we want to commit, Lord, these words and, and, and Lord, your words to us today. Father, we just pray, Father, as we explore them, Lord, just speak to us through them. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So, the story so far, we've got this guy, Nehemiah, he's left his home country, sorry, he's, sorry, he's left the land of Persia, and he's headed back to his own country, to his, home, to his own country, and we see in chapters 3 and chapters 4, this remarkable sense of unity, as the people just come together, people from all different backgrounds, we've got the, the priests, the nobles, the, just the ordinary folks, and they all come together with the one task, the one focus of rebuilding these walls. But now we discover, actually all is not well. We need to remember, remember that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. You see, we have an adversary, the devil. And, and he's out, he's out to seek, to destroy, to cause as much trouble, and to cause as much friction as he possibly can. And, this, and, and, and when he feels, often he attacks from the outside, when he feels his attack from the outside, what he does next, he begins to attack from within. In fact, one of his favorite and perhaps most devastating weapons is pride and selfishness. You see, if he can get me thinking that it's all about me and about what I want, well, then he actually wins before I even begin to realize what's going on here. And the truth is, most of us don't take much convincing about this one because for, for most of us, we, we actually really want to be at the center of everything and, and we just like to get our own way when we want it. Listen, the thing about this, we, we don't even need to be taught this type of behavior. If you've got children from the very, very youngest of children, part of their vocabulary is, I want it's mine. I, I, I want, I want. In fact, songs have been sung. Frank Sinatra sings, I did it my way. Why? Because it's all about me. Because believe it or not, I am the most important person in this room. Because it's, it's about me, about my needs, about my requirements. It's, it's all about me. And we, we can so easily take on that level of, of selfish attitude of thinking it's, it's about my happiness. In fact, and I don't care who I go across or walk over just to make sure that I am happy. And yet, somewhat ironically, sometimes the most unhappiest of people, the most miserable of people, are also the most selfish of people. So we come to this chapter and we, we see here it shows the depth of sin in the human heart. And it's a call for us to examine our own hearts in the light of God's word, but also to love and to care for one another. That's where we're going, okay? Verses 1 to 5. 
The people are struggling, okay? This is, things are difficult for them. They, they are in the middle of this great work for a great God, but now there's this great outcry that goes out because of major disappointment and disagreement going on among the people. And see, some of the people are unhappy, partly because of the amount of work they've got to do, but mostly because of the lack of food. They're going hungry, and fights are beginning to break out among the people. There are four groups, that four, that's one, two, three, four, four groups of people, learn to count, four groups of people mentioned in this particular um, passage in verses one to five. The first group are people who had no land and who needed food. Now the problem is they have no way of getting food. They're just, they've got no money, they've got no food, they're very hungry, there's a famine breaking out in the land and it, and it just seems impossible for them to buy food so that's why they run to Nehemiah and they ask him to do something about this terrible situation. The second group of people are probably a little bit better off. These are the landowners, but they have had to mortgage their properties in order to buy food. Now the problem is... Inflation is just shooting through the roof. The price of food is extortionately high. And the truth is they are spending their money and it's, it's not going to last them for very much longer. The third group of people, similar to the, to the second group, are those who can't pay because of extortionate taxes. They've had to borrow money in order to pay these taxes. The only problem is when you borrow money, you've got to put some security against that money. So these people are at risk of losing their houses, their homes, even their families. The fourth group of people, and these are the problem ones. This group are the wealthy Jews who are exploiting their neighbors, who are lending them money, but when the, can't, when, when they, when the people can't afford to pay back their debts and pay back the money they owe, they're they're losing their land, and even their children are being taken as repayment for the money. And these wealthy business people are greedy, and their selfishness is just exploiting the poor. And in fact, they're becoming very rich in the process. Now, the Bible doesn't say, and certainly if we look at the laws of Moses, the Mosaic laws, they do not forbid people lending money. But what they do say is that they should not act as the money lenders do, they should not be charging interest for this money. Instead, they should treat one another with love and care and compassion. You see, God has got a special heart, a special concern for the poor. We see that throughout all of Scripture. God loves the poor. He's got this special concern for the poor. And underlying this principle is the fact that God's people and God's land belongs to God. Not rocket science. God's people and God's land belongs to God and therefore there's no reason why we should gain from, people should not be getting personal gain from what belongs to God in the first place. So this is the, this is the problem Nehemiah is facing. This is the challenge he's got to deal with. So we see what he does with this. You know, I, I guess it's one thing to face a challenge from a foreign enemy coming against us. It's, it's something much, much different. In fact, perhaps much, much more difficult to deal with your own people who are fighting with each other. But Nehemiah shows true leadership when he responds to this problem. His first reaction, verse 6, anger. 
He's angry with these people. Now, it's worth bearing in mind that Nehemiah is not in the same position as the people. As a leader, he's got his own income. He's, he's able to actually buy his own food for himself. He doesn't need to be selling his land, but yet he still identifies with them, and he is moved emotionally because of the plight that they're facing, and he is angry at the injustice of this situation. But this is not just some sort of flare up of sort of sinful temper. This is an expression of righteous indignation at the behavior of those, of, of these so-called businessmen and what they're doing to the people. See, this is a true anger against sin. And his confidence comes because he knows he is standing on God's word. He knows as he speaks out, he's speaking truth, he's speaking what is right because he is speaking what he knows God's word to be saying. And a true leader always asks, what is right? What's right? Not, 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 what, not what's popular or, or even what's the easy way out or what is right? What is God's view in this situation? So what is the right thing to do? It's also important to make note that the building of the walls did not create the problem. It just revealed it. It wasn't the walls that caused the problem. It just revealed the thing. And so often when we're building something new, whether that be a church plant or whether it be a new church program or perhaps a building project, and we're probably doing many of those things at the moment, when we face these challenges to our faith and also to our patience and to our priorities, sometimes it brings the very best out in people and sometimes it brings out the very worst. And so often when we're building, when we're breaking new ground, tensions can begin to grow. But listen, before we begin to blame the project or other people, we first of all need to look at our own hearts to examine ourselves in the light of God's word and test our angry, test our anger, test our indignation. Is this a righteous, holy anger? Or is it selfishness? It's because I don't get my own way. I mean, weigh these things up as we examine our hearts in the light of God's word by his spirit. The second thing that Nehemiah does is that he thinks before he acts. It says Nehemiah pondered. He sort of, he, he, he consults himself. He sort of takes himself off to the side and just has a good chat with himself. And, and he just works a few things out in his own head. He, he gets control of his feelings and his thoughts and he ponders the problem. And most importantly, he sought what's God's direction, what's God's word into this particular situation. And only then does he go to the people. It says in Proverbs 16, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit, then he takes a city. Listen, if a leader cannot control himself, he hasn't got a hope of controlling or leading anybody else. So after pondering the situation, after weighing things up, he gets control of his feelings and then Nehemiah decides to get the people together and to confront publicly their selfishness, their sin of those who are causing this problem. 
And listen, there are times when public sin demands public rebuke and repentance. And as a leader, we put ourselves out there in front of people, and when we get it wrong and when we sin, it demands that we stand before people sometimes and admit the fact that we haven't got it right. The third thing that Nehemiah does is that he rebukes the people, but look how he does it. He, he, he's, not, he's not quite so harsh on them as, as perhaps some of us may have been. In fact, he, he appeals to them in six, that's only five, six, see, I told you couldn't count, six different ways. The first thing, he appeals to them out, sorry, he appeals to their love. He appeals to their love. These guys, they've been robbing their own people. They've been taking advantage of them. They've been taking money off them. They've been bringing them back into slavery again. These are their fellow Jews, their brothers and sisters. And they're causing them such distress. Listen, if we love people, if we really love people, we won't want to take advantage of them. We won't want to mistreat them. We won't want to, to abuse them in any shape or form. So he starts, he appeals to them out of love. Out of love. The second thing he does is he appeals to them on the basis of God's word. Now the Bible has got lots to say about how we give and how we use our money and, and, and so on. And Actually the Bible's got a lot to say about many things. But tells us in our money, we, we need to use it to steward ourselves well. We need to use it wisely. We need to, to be generous. We need to give to God with a cheerful, with a joyful heart. But listen, money should never become our God. That's what's happening in this situation. They're beginning to worship money more than God. Listen, anything can take God's place in our life. It could be money. It could be our finances. It could be it could be our sport, rugby, I love rugby, I'm, I'm crying inside, Ireland have lost, it's a tragedy, <laughs> out of the World Cup, hey, but you know anything, anything could become God, listen, there's only one true God, only one person who we ought to worship, the one we faithfully worship, and that is God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship him. And he appeals on behalf of God's word. What's God's word saying to you? That's where we find our basis. We find our truth in there. The third thing he does, he reminds them of God's salvation. He says, look, guys, remember what God has done in your lives. And listen, we've, we've sang about it. We've celebrated with the communion here this afternoon of all that Jesus Christ has done for us. Remember what Christ has done for you on the cross, how he, he died for you, how he rose again, how he has, if you've come to him by faith, how he has saved you, how he has brought you out of darkness into light. This is a wonderful thing. And listen, on the basis of your salvation, that will change the way we treat one another absolutely without question and God and God has redeemed Israel out of Egypt he's taken them out of captivity in Babylon and while while Nehemiah and others are building and, and building strong these greedy money lenders are tearing down they're destroying the work because of their selfishness and pride and actually they're taking people back into slavery into bondage again 
They've been rescued from these foreign nations who have had them as slaves for many, many years. But now their own people are taking them back into slavery because of the debts, because of the money situation. And Nehemiah says, it's wrong. It's simply wrong. You can't be doing this. Remember God. And Nehemiah turns them back to God. He says, look at God. Look at the salvation of God. And once again, we see Nehemiah's heart in this situation. He is motivated by the mercy and by the saving power of God. Listen, he did, he did what he did only and always to please God. That's what motivates him. He wants to please his God. He's not looking for the praise or for the reward of people. He continually looks to God, to God himself. And this means that when some people don't really appreciate him or, or perhaps say things about him that he doesn't really like, it actually doesn't bother him that much because he's not really concerned about their approval. He is concerned only about the final assessment, the important assessment. That's God's assessment. Listen, it's so important that we live for an audience of one. That we live for an audience of one for Jesus. That we keep our eyes on him. That we center ourselves on Jesus Christ. Listen, if we try to find our approval or anything at anything or anyone else, it's only going to bring us down. But we look to Jesus Christ. We keep our eyes on him. We live for him. We are concerned. What does he think? What does he think? How do I please him? How do I please my Savior? Fourth thing. It's fourth appeal. He appeals to them because God has called Israel to be a light to their Gentile, neighbor, Gentile neighbors. But actually their witness so far isn't that good, to be honest. In fact, it's not an example that any of us would want to follow. It's, it's just craziness what they're doing to their own people. Listen, as Christians, people watch you. Whether you like it or not, if you claim the name of Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, people are watching you. They're watching how you behave. They're watching what you do. In fact, they make assessments on Christianity and the church and on God because of you. That's just the reality of it. And how you behave reflects not just on yourself, not even just on your church, but it reflects ultimately on God himself. And if you walk in faith and trust in God, then surely you want to honor him. Surely, particularly, you want to honor him among those people who just don't know him yet. You want to be an example of the Lord Jesus Christ to those around you. And we should be known for our love, for our care, for our compassion for one another as we live out Jesus in our homes, in our workplace, in our churches, in our communities. Fifth thing, Nehemiah practices what he preaches. He lent money to the poor. He he didn't charge any interest to it. And you know what? It's so easy for us to become so hypocritical. We sort of say, you know, listen to what I'm saying. Don't look at what I'm doing. Yeah? Just, you know, just do what I say. Don't, anybody who's got kids knows how kids pick up everything that you, that you do. I remember many, number of years back when Rosie was much, much smaller. I can't even remember the details of what it was. But I remember she, she did something. And I thought, I don't like, I don't like her attitude there. And then I realized, that's me. 
She's picked that off. Uh, it was quite shocking sometimes to, to realize, actually, she has just copied something that I did. And I had to go to my, I couldn't really tell her off for it because it's exactly the way I would have reacted in exactly the same situation. And I had to go to myself and think, you know what? I've got to change the way I behave. I've got to just find a better way of dating this to model something more of Christ in my home. It, it's, it's, it's so important that we practice what we preach. And Nehemiah is a leader who serves the people rather than trying to get any personal gain for himself. D.L. Moody writes, he says, a holy life will produce the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horn. They simply shine. Listen, your example is Jesus. My example is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who leads in humility, in love, in compassion, the one who gave his very life out of love for you. That's how you lead. That's the compassion, the heart of a leader, the compassion of a heart of each one of us as we, we call ourselves believers, that we lead out of that level of compassion for one another. J. Oswald Chambers puts it like this. He says, a cross stands in the way of spiritual leadership, a cross on which the leader must consent to be impaled. Sounds painful. That's how we should live. And Nehemiah, he doesn't take money for himself. He doesn't try to line his own pockets. Instead, he pays for his own expenses out of his own pocket. He doesn't even ask for any reimbursement for the money. He actually goes one step further than that again because rather than just paying for his own food, he actually buys food for others. It says he fed 150 people regularly. That's generous. That's really generous. And we find in other parts of the Bible Similar things happening. The Apostle Paul, he, he, he doesn't accept support from the Corinthian church, but he, he makes tents. That's his job. He makes tents in order to earn enough money. He preaches the gospel, but he, but he actually provides for himself. However, it is worth mentioning, Paul does go on to say that actually a worker is worthy of his wages. So listen, it's not wrong for us to pay someone to work for a church, but it is so important that each Christian have this balanced spiritual attitude towards our wealth and towards our ministry. And we should be willing to sacrifice personal gain to see the spiritual growth and good in other people. Biblical leadership should be a quiet sacrifice. I use the word deliberately, quiet sacrifice. We don't blow our own trumpet. We like God to do that if he so chooses. But there's a quiet sacrifice as we, we learn to lead. Because there's always that temptation that we want to seek wealth, or we want to seek power, or maybe both. And Nehemiah and his friends, they walk in the fear of the God, and they serve honestly, and they set an example, both as believers and also as leaders. The last sixth thing is this. He appeals to the, he appeal, his last appeal is to remind them of the judgment of God. He requires and he, God requires and God expects our obedience. We don't talk a lot about judgment. We don't like that word anymore, of course, but it's in the Bible, so we, we've got to deal with it, unfortunately. And listen, each one of us will have to stand and give an account 
for our lives before a holy God one day. Now, don't get me wrong what I'm not saying. Listen, we are saved by grace. Listen, your salvation is a free gift. It's not about you or your work or your effort or anything that you have done. Listen, it is a free gift, just an amazing gift from God to each one of us. But out of that gift of grace, we are called to bring Jesus to those around us. We are called to live obedient and holy lives before our God. And listen, one day we will stand and we'll give an account for what we've done with the gifts and the talents that God has placed in our lives. So Nehemiah, he challenges the leaders. He asks them to make an oath in the presence of the priests. And this promise is made, yes, before the priests and yes, before the people, but actually it's made before God himself. And this is a very serious thing. Listen to me, in everything that you do, in everything that you say, you do it in the, in the presence of God. He's everywhere. Hope you know that. He's everywhere. You can't hide. It tells us in the psalm, you cannot hide from his presence. And listen, everything that we do and say is done in God's presence. So listen, let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's truthfulness. It's honesty. It's how we conduct our lives and we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. That our yes is yes and our no is no. And we see the response of the people. As this leader challenges them, they respond with repentance. They respond in saying, you know what? We're going to do what you've said we, we should do. They give the money back. They promise they're not going to carry on with the, uh, the, the crazy behavior they've been doing up until now. And they make some major life changes. But as we finish, I want to just mention four things, particularly if you are a leader. Now, I think that probably includes most of us here today. Because if you're a parent, you're a leader. In your workplace, if people are responsible to you, you're a leader. If you're leading a small group or something, whether it be here or even in, a, in, a, in the community, maybe a sports team, whatever, you know, you're a leader. Most of us are leaders in some shape or, or other. So four things, just as we finish. First is this. Don't be surprised when problems come. Put any group of people together and you are going to get problems. So, so don't be surprised, actually, when people don't always get on. It, sometimes there are tensions. Just personalities sometimes just clash. But especially when... You, you are in the process of building. Listen, the enemy is going to come in and going to try and cause as much friction and as much insult and as much problems as he possibly can. So don't be surprised when these things happen. The second thing, we need to confront conflict courageously. You know, the longer that I am a leader, the more I realize that you just simply can't ignore things. I've been leading in the workplace for too many years to count now and in church life for, for probably a little bit less, I guess. But you know what? We, we, you can't just ignore things sometimes. And it's so important that we get godly wisdom and prayerful direction before we tackle a situation. Very easy just to jump in with both feet immediately. And, and sometimes the wrong word can just cause more damage than good. But also holding back too long can cause equal amounts of, of problems. So we need to confront things sometimes. The third thing is this, 
Make sure that your heart is right. And this is an important one. Make sure that your heart is right. It's so important that we make sure that we, we deal with any sin in our own lives before we try and confront a problem or a sin in somebody else's life. It's the old parable, isn't it, of the, the speck in your brother's eye and you go to it with a pair of tweezers to try and get this, this speck out. But then you've got a massive plank in your own eye and you can't see very much and those tweezers tend to pierce eyeballs. But gruesome, I know. But that's the reality of it. And we need to be so careful. We, we, we examine our own hearts, first of all, before we, we challenge other people. We live as men and women of integrity before God. Honest with ourselves. Honest with God. Fourth one. We see every problem as an opportunity for God to work. You know, all that we should do should be motivated by love. It should be controlled by truth. It should be done for the glory of God. And listen, when we, when we face spiritual battles, and we will, and when we face challenges and problems in our life, and they're going to happen whether you like it or not, that's just the reality. We must, be, we must handle these with the wisdom of God, but also with the expectation that God can do immeasurably more than you can ever dream of or imagine. As we come to a situation, to a problem, no matter how challenging it is, we come with God. And God is the God of the impossible, the God of the breakthrough, the God who brings change and transformation in people's lives. So let us come with expectation that God can turn any situation around for his good and for his ultimate glory. So problems and disagreements and fights, whether in church or at work or at home, have the potential for us to very simply just take our eyes off the goal and the purpose that God has called us to do, and that is to be people who point others to Jesus Christ, to proclaim Jesus. Listen, this is one of the most effective tactics of the enemy to make us ineffective in our work and in our walk. And for Nehemiah and for the people, it's now time for them to get themselves back to their place on the wall, to begin to build again, to keep their eyes on the gold. But listen, as Nehemiah begins to build, as the people begin to build, be under no illusions. The enemy is going to be busy too. More on that next week. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. It's, it's, it's challenging sometimes. It's, it's certainly challenging me, Lord. And, and Father, I just pray, Lord, that we learn to examine our hearts, our lives before you, Lord. We, we, we want to live for you. Lord, we want to honor you. We want to give our lives for your service, for your glory, Lord, for the proclamation of your name, Lord Jesus, that, that this city, Lord Jesus, would know you. And Lord, I want to thank you for the way in which you're dealing with, with my heart, with, with any of our hearts right now. Lord, I want to invite you, Holy Spirit, just to come and just to, to continue to minister into our lives, into our hearts. We just know.